This is the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. How do I? I'll skip ahead a bit. No, I can't skip ahead. All, all right, everybody, into the time machine. No, 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 no! You don't understand how radio works. All I have to do to return this is fade my voice out like this and cue the organist. Episodes that stand out as particularly representative of those series, or as one of those quotable episodes that fans of old-time radio like to discuss, either in person or on social media. We'll open each episode by introducing the selection, describing it briefly, and then we'll play it for you. Then we'll come back at the end and discuss it at length, each of us giving their opinions on its merit, its performances, or anything that stands out for us. And that's exactly what we're presenting to you, just our opinions on whether or not it's worthy of a place in every old-time radio aficionado's personal collection. You don't have to agree with us, and in fact, we may not agree with each other. But we do hope that you'll enjoy what we bring to the table and come back for more. Each of us three will take turns selecting a show for discussion. Last month's choice was mine. Oh, God, it was good. And that was an episode of X-1. Just in case you didn't hear it, go back and hear it. This month, it's our new co-host, Dave's Choice. What do you have for us, David? For my very first selection, I'm bringing an episode of Quiet Please, entitled Tanglefoot. Quiet Please was the creation of radio auteur Willis Cooper and aired between 1947 and 49. Debuting on June 8, 1947, with the science fiction horror episode Nothing Behind the Door, Quiet Please remained on the air for the next two years before ending its relatively short run. While often categorized as purely a horror program, the scope of Cooper's achievements with Quiet Please cannot be pigeonholed into any one genre. Throughout its run, which consisted of over a hundred original scripts, very few of them repeats, all penned by Cooper, Quiet Please was, more accurately speaking, a fantasy drama. The series ranged from the terrifying to the comical. Its most famous episodes, Whence Came You and The Thing on the Forwell Board, fell into the former category. But more often than not, Quiet Please presented listeners with a veritable smorgasbord of storytelling styles and tones. One aspect of Cooper's show that made it stand out was its unprecedented use of silence and dramatic pauses, typically considered a cardinal sin in radio, and his refusal to stick to any one genre or format. Some episodes, notably the series finale, were slow meditations bordering on monologues. Others, like Kill Me Again and Good Ghost, were supernatural comedies with punchy dialogue. There were occasional love stories, albeit of an unconventional variety, like The Pathetic Fallacy, Let the Lilies Consider, Little Fellow, and Not Enough Time. There was even an episode about William Shakespeare, I Always Marry Juliet. Suffice to say, listeners could never guess what kind of story they were going to get from one week to the next. Another key distinction between Quiet Please and its contemporaries is that unlike other anthology shows, Quiet Please featured the recurring performances of the same main actor in every episode, one Ernest Chappell. And so, without further delay, we present Tanglefoot from June 4th, 1949. In quiet, please. And now, friends, adjust your radio dials to the proper frequency, get comfortable, and listen. How does he make his voice do that? Forward into the past! Quiet, please. Quiet, please. The American Red 
Broadcasting Company presents Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper and which features Ernest Chappell. Quiet, Please, for tonight is called Tanglefoot. Back in the old days when GI didn't mean general issue, it just meant galvanized iron. I used to be a plumber. There are no cracks about leaving tools in the shop when you go out on a job. Because if a plumber took along all the tools he's liable to need on a job he don't know nothing about till he gets there, he'd need one of those moving vans to tote him. Just the same, what you can do with a 14-inch Stilson wrench and a mitt full of oakum, you'd be surprised at. This place where I work. Well, you ever smell a plumbing shop? And I tell you what you smell. Oakum, first thing. Like creosote. That's what you start with. Linseed oil, that's in the red lead you use on the joints and stuff. You smell a hot lead where the kids melting down scrap lead into little pigs you can put in your bag. Galvanized iron. Yeah, sure, you can smell galvanized iron. Go past the bins where they keep the L's and the T's and the street L's and the Cuptons and the unions. All sizes. And 14 sizes. You can smell galvanized iron, all right. The yeah, there's a smell of rats that live back behind the bins. Gasoline burning in the blowtorches and the furnaces. And the thing I remember best of all, the smell of the flypaper. My heavens, there seemed to be flypaper every place. I don't know, maybe in the old days there was more of it or there was more flies or something. Seemed like every place you went, you run into flypaper. Remember that smell? Like varnished with sugar in it, like taffy that got spoiled. Kind of a fascinating smell in a sicky way. Think about it and you'd kind of think, yeah, no wonder the flies liked the smell and went for it. Smell? Sure flies can smell. They got smellers that'll make a bloodhound jealous if they know it. And the flies got lots of things. Yeah, you got a jillion eyes, six fancy legs, wings. And a trunk like an elephant. Only littler, the Bosque they call it. Huh? Ah, not the flies. They can't talk. Boy, how do you break good? I know a lot about flies. I'll tell you about it. I can see it today. There was people living upstairs above the plumbing shop where I worked. That was in the summer... 1915, I guess, quite a while ago. Their back porch hung over the back porch of the shop. uh, uh, Made kind of a shed where we used to thread pipe, melt up scrap lead, stuff like that. And Ricketts, the horse, used to be tied up back there in the alley with a wagon. When he was working back there, it was quiet and shady and hot. All you could hear was Ricketts stamping his feet and switching his tail at the flies and Maybe the the gasoline furnace. Whoever he was working with talking kind of lazy and slow in the heat. Ah, boy, was it hot. I and Herbie, we was threading three-quarter-inch black iron pipe. You want for boat excursion tonight, Buck? Yeah, what boat excursion? Crawfish club. On the Percy Swing tonight. Well, I thought it was tomorrow. No, tonight. Yeah, that's good enough. Get another length of pipe. Hot, ain't it? Ninety-one, you know, in the shade. It's hot for old Ricketts out there in the sun. His head's in the shade. What's he hollering about? Flies, I guess. You should put the fly netting on him. Yeah. Look out, don't step in the fly paper. Fly paper every place. That bird chin shade, he's nuts about fly paper. Gone stuff. Get it all over the place. That's where you're throwing it. You thread up the pipe. I'll take care of the pipe paper. You think with all that stuff around, there wouldn't be so many flies? Flies are smart. How do you mean, smart? Not fly paper. Fly paper's always full of them. And them's the dumb flies. Smart ones look at it and smell it and fly away. Land on people and horses. Take a bite. They'll live longer. I wonder how long flies live. Nah, I don't know. Too long. Any more lengths of pipe we ain't threaded? 
Okay. I wonder what Frank's thinking about. Eating? That's what I'm thinking about. What time is it? Look at that fancy new wristwatch of yours. Busted. Must be pretty near noon. Then, uh, go home, do you? You want to go with me? I wasn't hinting. <laughs> Heck, you wasn't. Well, <laughs> no flies on you, but. Mom made some ice cream she left for me. Your mom home? No, nah, she went up to Peoria's this morning. P.A. Bedner's got a sale or something. Well, I could stop at Ruins and get some boiled ham or something. We could make sandwiches. Oh, we got some. Well, I'd got something there. We'll eat them off you. Yeah. Twelve o'clock. Okay. <laughs>
Mrs. Gibbons, she went out to the kitchen to look at the cakes and don't go banging things around and make my cakes fall, she said. I said, yes, ma'am, for about the 14th time, and she shut the door. And I laid down my ball-peen hammer. I said, whew. Me too. Why can't women leave you alone? Well, I get the union after her. She thinks she knows so much about plumbing. Well, at least it's cool. What's the matter? Yeah, I got my elbow on the flypaper. My heavens, what she still got flypaper around for? Yeah, let me do it. Oh, got to take off the skin, too. Squirt me some gasoline on it. I got guck all over me. Ain't been any flies for three weeks. Any more gasoline? I know where there's a fly. Huh? I know where there's a fly. Well, why don't you swat him? Well, two reasons. First, I uh, kind of like this fly. Like him? Raised him from a pup. Herbie. Hmm? Raised a fly from a pup? Second thing is, you want to swat this fly, you better have a baseball bat. What? This here fly is eight inches long. Huh? Hand me the red lead. How big? Maybe nine. Where are you going? Miss Gibbons. What are you calling her for? Miss Gibbons, call up the asylum. Herbie Butterworth is seeing flies nine inches long. Here, under the coal shed. Come on, Teddy. Here, Teddy boy. Here, Teddy. Come on, Teddy. Come on out there, boy. Fly just up and killed poor old Teddy. But maybe Teddy was scared to death about the fly first. Because nobody in the whole great big wide world ever seen a fly that was eight, nine inches long. Nobody but first Herbie and then Teddy. And afterwards, me. I ain't found him yet. Maybe he got froze to death. Kind of scares me, Buck. Don't it you? He comes after me. I'll bat him on the head. He'll come flying up to you. Come flying up. You won't even see his wings. You know how flies' wings is. You can see through them. Maybe he's froze to death. Flies can't stand cold weather. They die. They don't always die. Sometimes they go into, what is it, a coma? When they get warm, they come to again. And then they're hungry. Well, I think he's dead. Because we ain't heard about anybody croaking, you know, with a with a mystery. Not since Teddy. Hey, I can still see that dog. Try not thinking about Teddy. Maybe you ought to leave some flypaper around. Big hunks of flypaper. I got flypaper all around the coal bin there where he was. Heavy enough? And don't have to be so heavy. He lands on a hunk of tangle-footed. He'll get all stuck to the hair and hair. Hair on his legs. Flies got hair on their legs. Real hair? More like bristles and like spikes, kind of. He get flypaper stuck in his legs, his wings. He ain't gonna go skidding around much. Maybe he's dead. Sure hope not. Hope not? Well, I, I kind of liked him. Till he ate up Teddy. I'd be just as satisfied if I never get to see him. Yeah, it must be quite a sight, though. 
like looking at a fly through a magnifying glass. Sure glad he only got to be eight, nine inches long. Oh, I hate to lose him. I could put him in a circus or, or a sideshow or something. Make a jillion dollars. Take him up to Chicago. People would come from miles and miles around. Well, to a zoo just about. Or a museum like that one. Where is it? New York? Yeah, he was quite a thing. He used to eat mice. I went and caught mice and, and let him have them. Ought to see what he'd do to a dead mouse. Oh, thank you kindly. I've seen what he'd done to Teddy. How'd you get him so big, Herbie? Huh? Secret, Buck. And so? I bet if he'd lay an egg. The egg would be bigger. I mean, the pup would be bigger than he was. Fly egg. Bigger than a hen's egg it'd be. Bigger than maybe a turkey egg. Maybe he's dead. Yeah. He comes after me, I'm going to shoot on my old 12 Ah, oh, you yeah. couldn't hit a balloon with a bull fiddle. Hit him, all right. Hello, Louise. How do you do? Who's that, Buck? I don't know. Just moved to town from someplace in Ohio, Iowa, someplace. Louise. Louise McGinty, McKinley, McKinney, something like that. Where'd you know her? Met her at Empire Hall. I danced the other night. What dance? Social Athletic Club. Uh huh. Well, night. See you at the shop in the morning. So long. The cold, ain't it? Yeah, gonna snow. Feels like snow. More busted water pipes. Yeah. Uh, so long, Buck. Say that, uh, at Louise, what's your name? That's something, ain't it? Yeah, I feel like that there type. I like it. Say, uh, Herbie. What? Listen. What? Listen, that... That great big fly of yours. Yeah? On the level now. Is there a great big fly? Huh? Couldn't you just be... Well, I just thought about it all of a sudden. I've never seen this here fly. I mean, you think I'm just fooling? I was wondering. I was just making it up. Was you? No. I wasn't making it up. I just wondered. Listen, Buck. I never made that up. Listen, I wished I was. I wish I'd never started making flies grow big. I would have stopped when I got one this big... I, wish I don't know whether to believe you or not. Listen, Buck, when I think what that there fly... You remember way back last summer when we first talked about it? You said, what would you feed, a great big fly? Yeah. Remember what you said? What? You said people. People, you said. That's what you'd feed them. Oh. oh yeah. Listen, Buck, he already had a dog. That we know about. What if he... If he ain't dead by now and all is cold, he must be... He must be what? Hungry. Third of December, 1915. Yeah, seven, six, five, four, three, the third, the night Herbie and me talked like I told you. I remember because on the seventh, the Boy Scouts had a movie at the Capitol Theater. It used to be the Standard Theater. And there was a kid with a bugle blowing it out front. That was the seventh. That was the night Bert Kincaid phoned me up from the shop and Mayor Watson came over from kind of next door and told me Bert was calling me. And I will, Bert, uh, he said, you and Herbie Butterworth go right away to these people, these McKinleys or McKinleys or McKinneys, whichever it was, because their friend or something was wrong with it and they was hollering and they was freezing. And I should go right on over and Herbie would meet me there. He was already on the way with the rickets and the wagon and the tools. So I said, all right, and I went home and put on my overshoes and my army sweater, and I'm over there. See, the place is only two doors away from where Herbie lived, there by the Garfield School. And that's why he was there already, see? I never even bothered to knock on the door. I just went around to the cellar door with my Coleman lantern, and I come on down, and Herbie was there already, sitting on the cellar steps, so I just about fell over him, and not looking very happy. Say, I said, I thought there was freezing to death here in this house with a busted furnace that's not cold down here. It's warm, I said. I fixed it. Huh? I fixed the furnace. This valve was corroded, and I put a new one on, and I fired up. It's all right. Well, what you setting on the cellar stairs for, then, if it's all fixed? What you setting around here for? Well, I... Why are you looking so crabby about it? Anybody ought to be crabby? It's me. I walked halfway across town. I'm about... What you so crabby about? Shh. Huh? She's down here. Who? 
Louise, you know, the McKinley gal or whatever her name is. Where? <laughs> oh. And that's why I ain't welcome to his company. Three Shut up. Gonna <laughs> make some time, huh? Shut up. She'll hear you. Where is she? I went back there in the preserve closet. What for? Gonna bring you a jar of apple butter? The old man makes elderberry wine. <laughs> Got some bottles back there he bought from Ohio or Iowa or whatever it is. Three years old. I sure like elderberry wine. I know it. Well, I tell you, Herbie, I'm a good guy. I'm your friend, Herbie. Seeing you got everything fixed up, I'll beat it. You don't have to go. I never stood in the guy's way, Herbie. I'll go out into the cold and the snow. No I'll snow. go right home and read B.C. Allensworth's editorials in the Times, and I'll leave the coast clear for you. You don't have to do that, Buck. Just as soon as I have one drink of elderberry wine. No, there was a catch in it. Now I'll go right away, honest, Herbie. <laughs> hey. You've been telling her about giant flies and things. Cut it out. That thing's dead. I guess if it ever was alive. You got the makings? Got some tailor-mades. Nebos? Yeah, much obliged. Ain't you smoking? Nah. What's she doing, making that wine? Oh, well, man, probably hit it for herself. You give her a good smacking if you find she's swoping. <laughs> probably give you a good smacking, too, hmm? Why'd you yell at her? The folks will hear upstairs. Louise! Shut up. <laughs> hey, Louise, shut up, Buck. Come on, let's go help her, Nix. Louise, you want some help? Buck, the people will hear you. In here? Hey, Louise. I thought maybe you needed some... Louise? Louise. Buck. What's that? Herbie. What's the matter, Buck? Buck, what's that? Louise. I could recognize her by her clothes. By her clothes, that's all. You never saw a person that met a fly? No, you never did. Herbie and I did. A big, not eight, nine inches long now, down in the hot, stuffy cellar. Two feet long. And fat and kind of loggy it was, dopey, like after you had a big dinner. And Louise, Herbie, he fainted and I... Back there by the furnace pipes. I could see them eyes. The Jillian eyes. And that trunk like elephant. It kind of buzzed and wiggled its eyes at me and rubbed its face with its... paws like a cat washing its face after dinner. And I tried to holler, but all I could hear was this buzzing, that's all. And then it kind of stumbled out from the pipes and it jumped and it came right past my face and it, it flew kind of sagging, kind of... Out of the corner of my eye, I seen it. It flew right out into the furnace room, and the furnace door was open, and the fire... You don't want to hear anymore, huh? There's only a little bit more. You've come this far with me, so... And they put us both, Herbie and me, in jail. They said we murdered Louise, but nobody could murder anybody like that. And there wasn't any other evidence, so... See, the fly was dead, disappeared, and there wasn't anything to go on. So they had to let us go. That's pretty near the whole story. Ain't it, Herbie? The egg? Oh, sure, I pretty near forgot about that egg. How about the egg? Bigger than a hen's egg. Big's a turkey egg. Back there in the dark behind the pipes. I didn't see it. Buck seen it. But I never told anybody about it. Did I, Herbie? Nobody but you. And when they left us out of jail, we we come back here looking for it, but it was gone. There was kind of a squenching back there, and we looked, and sure enough, larva. They call it in the books. You know. And we took it away with us, and sure enough, this one grew bigger than its father, or its mother, or whatever it was. And everyone since then has got a little bigger and a little hungrier. Is that so, Herbie? Yep. 
Hungry all the time. Never let him out to hunt. Wait. Look at him. Ain't he a dare? <laughs> First real live pet fly you ever seen. <laughs> Here, Louise. We call him Louise. Look at them eyes. Jillions of them. <laughs> Look. He unrolls his truck. Ain't that cute? <laughs> nice, clean face. See the sharp bristles on his legs? Biggest fly in the world. Bigger than a collie. Bigger than a Shetland pony, I bet. And hungrier, too. Come on, Louise. Wake up. He's awake, Buck. Uh-huh. Okay, Herbie? Okay. Go on in. No, you I'm talking to. You, he says. Go on in. Go on in. Louise is hungry. That's it. What's the matter? Can't move your feet? Sure. You're stuck in something? <laughs> used to call that stuff fly paper. We got a different name for it now. And I used trying to get loose. You're stuck for good. And Louise is hungry. Only heard a minute, that's all. Careful, Louise, honey. Don't get your feet stuck in the man paper. Cooper, and the man who spoke to you was Ernest Chappell. And my friend, Herbie, was played by Jack Lesley. As usual, music required, please, is by Albert Berman, and the sound by William J. McClintock. Now, for a word about next week's choir, please, here is our writer-director, Willis Cooper. Okay, Bill? Thank you for listening to choir, please. We've got a story for you next week. Strange title of The Hat and the Bed and John J. Catherine. The Hat and the Bed and John J. Catherine. Next week. So until next week at the same time, I am quietly yours, Ernest Chapel. ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. That was an episode of Quiet, Please, called Tanglefoot, originally broadcast June 4th, 1949, on ABC. David, this was your selection for this installment. What made you choose it? Well, for one thing, Quiet, Please is one of my all-time favorite radio shows from the Golden Age or from any era, really. And I chose this episode partly just because I like it and partly because a lot of uh, real, real diehard fans of the show would, would agree that this is really the last true great episode of the series. Um, it, it was only on the air for two years. There weren't really a lot of episodes that were uh, not well received by, by fans of the show, um, but there were a couple and the very last original script, um, which is the episode that aired after this one is, it's uh, it's just an oddball episode. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm a big fan of the show, and I've only listened to it once because I was so perplexed and so underwhelmed by it. And so this episode, on the other hand, is um, I think a great episode by by Quiet Please standards or just by old time radio standards in general. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I've got a lot of notes here. Where to where to begin? Um, I guess I was gonna. I, I think at the beginning. Okay. You start from the um, top of the show, then if you want to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Um, go to the middle. Go to the middle. <laughs> I'm, actually, I yeah, I know you're joking, but I am going to go to the middle. Oh, so, um, score. I know. So Willis Cooper is from a small town in Illinois called Pekin, Illinois, and uh, I know you, Pete, are from Pekin, and so 
I'd be lying if I said that that didn't play into my decision making because uh, excellent this, sucking up, David. This, excellent sucking up. Yeah, well, <laughs> this as far as I know, this might be the only piece of fiction that I'm aware of that's ever been set in Pekin. Maybe you guys can can correct me. Is there? A great novel or a, a I good can't think movie. of any other reason to talk There's about another Pekin. episode <laughs> of Quiet Please that takes well, place in Pekin and the and Tazewell County. And it's really? the one I refresh my name, memory. I forget the name of it, but it's the one where the man builds a time machine that sends him back fifty years and he meets a girl. Oh yeah. And the girl um, is the daughter of the sheriff of Tazewell County. That episode is called Not Enough Time. And yes. I guess he probably mentioned Pekin by name, but I, I, my memory uh I don't think he mentions Pekin, but me. he does mention uh, Tesla. He just County. mentions the county. Yeah. Okay. Well, that explains why I didn't make that connection. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I looked it up. I did some research on that particular one, Not Enough Time, and uh, he got all the names right. The name of the sheriff 50 years before this episode was – so and so, you know, he 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 got the name of the sheriff correct and was was very uh, on the on the nose historically. It would have been freaky as if he would have got the name of the sheriff right for the sheriff who's in now. Like fifty years <laughs> hence, <laughs> his time machine worked. <laughs> well, that sounds like something Willis Cooper would do because uh, it's interesting to those of us who know it, but. Obviously, I don't think radio listeners at the time would have ever uh, would have ever assumed that he would do so much research for a silly radio show about time travel. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, he may have been alive or may have been living. See, the funny thing is, I looked him up. Um, I looked up Pekin, Illinois, on Wikipedia. We're way off the topic here, but since you brought up Pekin, I looked up the city on Wikipedia and it has this list of famous people who come from there. And all it really Mm. says about Willis Cooper is that he graduated from Pekin high school in 1916. Okay. 1916 for crying out loud. (laughs) Yeah. um, That that only makes him two years older than my father. Okay. Mm. So (laughs) he graduated 65 years before I did. Yeah. From the same high school. (laughs) I, I don't, I don't know if we want to go too much into his biography, but I, I know he was a, um, a World War One vet after graduating from Pekin. And um, okay, yeah, he he was a man. He, he wore many hats before he became a, a professional radio producer and writer. He was a, an Army veteran in World War One. He was an ad, like uh, he was an ad man for a couple years, and then he kind of he kind of started off just doing like soap operas and things like that before creating Lights Out, which is the show that. A lot of people associate with Arch Obler, but uh, Willis Cooper actually created that show. Yeah, and uh, then there was kind of an, an in, uh, a gap in the broadcast between the Willis Cooper era and uh, Arch Obler's era. But everyone now associates it with um, with Obler, which is um, well, he took it and ran with it. And oh, sure, yeah, he did his own thing with it. Also, the there's script. there's there's no there's no episodes from the Willis Cooper era. There we have scripts, but we don't have actual recordings. So I think and you that's know, a pity. That is a serious pity that we don't. It really is. I would like to hear those. I think there are a couple that were remade during the Obler era that were written by Cooper. Uh, this, the Coffin in Studio B is one of 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 Cooper's that was remade mm-hmm. by by Obler in the forties. Yes, yeah. I was also. I was recently doing some research on um, Willis Cooper for an article I was writing about him, and it came out that another one of the scripts that they used um, on during Obler's era was a, a was a Christmas episode that was apparently one that they re, they performed like every year. It was like an annual tradition during the early years of of uh, Lights Out, both in oh. the Cooper era and also in the subsequent Obler era. There were there were different titles listed for it, um, but I think it, it was usually referred to by fans just as Christmas Story or Christmas Episode, and that's one that I I haven't tracked down to listen to yet. But it's kind of on my list. Uh, being being a Willis Cooper fan, yeah, uh, seems like something I should I should be aware of or should listen to at some point. All right, so let's get back on track um, and talk about <laughs> Tanglefoot, our our episode in, in question. Uh, did you uh, have anything else you wanted to uh, say about it? The, the performances, the story itself. What yeah, um, just a couple notes in terms of um, 
one reason I personally like this episode so much and the thing, one, the thing that I just appreciate about Cooper's writing in general is that I think he's very good at writing working class characters that don't come off as dumb, frankly. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of portrayals of working stiffs from the from the golden age of radio. I'm thinking of uh, Shrevy from The Shadow in particular. Characters like that, or, or, or um, the characters from Duffy's Tavern. If you and you guys listen to radio comedies, oh yeah, um, a, a, lot, a lot of a lot of times I feel like working class characters from that era are not depicted in the most favorable light. And I like that I can listen to an episode of Quiet Please, like Tanglefoot or The Thing on the Forbal Board, and in addition to being a crazy fantastical story, I also feel like i've gone through an apprenticeship program <laughs> like like if i listen to this i i know so much more about plumbing than i yes, did exactly beforehand <laughs> and I, I i just i can't imagine um i told myself i wasn't going to bash arch obler during this but i will say one minor critical thing about him which is that i it, it this kernel of a story in arch obler's hands i can't imagine being pulled off in a way that just wasn't corny and over the top and reliant upon you know sound effects and things like that i like that so much of this episode the music is effective without being overwhelming the dialogue seems so natural it just sounds like two guys you know working at a job site and then one of them happens to just be breeding this monster fly that's going to eat people <laughs> by the end of it but for the, for, for the first 15 minutes of this it's one of my hobbies <laughs> it's testament to to cooper's writing that he can just write uh, dialogue that's so naturalistic that you kind of forget you're listening to a story and you just, it's almost like you're just eavesdropping on these two guys who were just, you know, complaining about the lady they're doing this job for, or just, uh, Ernest Chappell's character is just giving you all this, uh, these little nuggets of, uh, of truth about, you know, his trade and, and in case you want to do it someday, you know, it's just, it's such an odd way to tell a story, but I think it works. And, um, I don't know. I don't know how else to articulate it beyond that. I just think it's, um, and so unusual compared to other radio shows, you know, from that era or any era. I, I think Willis Cooper was just in a class of his own. And, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, the way he portrays just everyday people, I think, is so fascinating. And, yeah, like when you, when, the, when this begins, it, it, you would be uh, hard-pressed to, to guess where it was going just based on the first few minutes. Because at, at, the, at the outset, it's just two guys talking shop in the yeah. uh, by the, the end of it, by, by the end of it, but you, the listener, are, are you know, you're being fed to a giant fly, and, and who would have thought that's where you'd end up? So, watch out for the man paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, true, and, and let me interject here: the uh, sure. the the conversations that they had throughout this episode were just wonderful. Like you said, uh, he's talking about. The horse, the horse is outside and he's in the sun. And then his buddy says, yeah, but her head's in the shade, you know, so it's it, <laughs> things like that. And and it starts out with uh, Chapel talking about, um, you know, he, he, you never know what tools you're going to need on a job. So why why bother bringing them or, or why bother bringing everything because you, you, you might not need some of it, but you might never even suspect that you might need these other things. Yeah. So um, he must, I, I imagine Cooper hung out with some plumbers for a couple of weeks just to get this sort of uh, documentary evidence on what they do. It, de you know? it definitely feels that way. I, I I'm not, um, I don't know what the guy's, you know, resume was for his life other than a few I wish key uh, occupations. But... I wish I really wish there was right. more information on him because I would have liked to known would have liked to know what he did in Pekin mm -hmm. as he was growing up, what his parents were uh did, what they uh, uh what sort of life he had um that caused him to get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because it sounds like he left at age 18. That's my understanding. And yeah. never went back. And in in that, I'm very much like Willis Cooper because <laughs> I <laughs> left Pekin at age 18 and I've never been back except to visit my mom every once in a while. So Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'd like to know if anybody even knew him or um, where it was – where are his parents buried? So you can try to find some information. Oh, well. Wheels within wheels. Um, <laughs> uh, let's go to Paul. Paul, any any comments on, on this episode? 
No, not really. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I forgot to listen and uh <laughs> No, I, I thought this X minus one episode was excellent. Um <laughs> Don't do that to me. <laughs> you listen to the wrong one again. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, no, I do. I agree with both of you guys. I, for how bombastic uh, dialogue can be on old time radio programs, just it, it, it almost does take you by surprise to just listen to a conversation that's so natural that you forget that you're listening to a, a radio program. You know, you think that somebody had a, happened to have a microphone in a room with a couple of plumbers while they were working throughout the day. You know, it was just very natural, and you're just kind of like, you know, the first time I listened to it, see, I did listen to it more than once. Um, <laughs> the first time I listened to it, I was just kind of like, oh, that was that was. I mean, it all it took me a little bit to realize what what was going on. That kind of stood out. And then when I realized it's, well, it's not, you know, he's, he's not like writing it like Shakespeare or something, but he's just writing it very naturally. And that's like, well, that's, you know, until you actually pay attention to that, you don't realize how rare that is on these old time radio programs for it to be just that fluid. And so then when I listen to it again, it's like, that really was really good. The way you know he wrote it and and they acted it out just so relaxed and realistic sounding, and that was one of the the highlights of the thing. So I mean, that, I really like that part of it. I agree with you on that. It's um, I mean, you hold it up against any any ten other uh, episodes of any ten other programs in terms of conversationalism right. and how they they how Cooper could make somebody say something and it's just natural. And then you've got other people who are, <laughs> I hate to do this to Jane, but <laughs> say it, say it, I, I say put it. the blade into your body and the blood pumps out of your heart. I put my hand over your That's mouth so you cannot say anything. That sounds like Arch Obler to me. It is Arch Obler. Very good. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's I'm children. sorry. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't criticize an, such an accomplished figure, but it's just being such a being such a fanboy for Willis Cooper, I just have such a hard time listening to a lot of Lights Out episodes, just because it seems so so uh, over the top and, like Paul said, bombastic. And yeah. <laughs> if, if you take away the sound effects, you you're left with a lot of really poor dialogue. And um, yeah. And then the just, funny thing, yeah. the funny thing, I had never heard of Quiet Please until. Uh, several years after I started listening to old time radio, and the first one I ever heard was uh, the thing on the Forble board mm. in in the late eighties, but it didn't it didn't grab me. Um, but then I I got an episode I got a copy on on cassette of Good Ghost, and that grabbed me because that was so good. The path of a guy from being alive and human to being murdered to becoming a ghost and learning how to be a ghost and so on. It's just a wonderful, wonderful story that uh, really grabbed me. And it's all the same thing. It's, it's, it's 75% narration, but then the, the, the other conversation, the other characters when they come in are natural as hell and just wonderful to listen to. And, and it's just the same way with, let's bring it back again to this one, Tanglefoot. (laughs) But um, the the way Cooper could write dialogue was just wonderful, and I will I will hold him up as a paragon of of a dialogue writer compared to ten other people. I mean, we're talking the Shadow, we're talking Suspense, we're talking Escape, which is a fantastic show. All of those guys needed to add that expositional stuff. But Cooper, he may add some expositional stuff, but it is just flawless and effortless. And that's right. what I love about it. And I'm sure yeah, you guys it, agree it with me. It kind of goes back to what Dave was saying about how he didn't uh, talk down to the working class. Right. And, it's, and you know that it's mostly the working class that listen to this stuff. And so exactly. not only did he not 
make the working class seem dumb in his stories, but the way he wrote it, it delivered it to the working class without having to feel like we need to put it on a teaspoon and, you know, spoon feed them what we're thinking <laughs> over here because they're too dumb to understand it. So we got to spoon feed it. He just went on like a normal conversation going, these people are smart enough. They'll know what the hell's going he on. He appealed to the native and so, yeah. uh, intelligence of his listeners. Yes. Yeah. That being said, I am now afraid of plumbers now that I've listened to this. So. <laughs> yeah, but these guys were – what year was this story set in 1915? So yeah, it's, it's like right it's before set, uh, he left Pekin. Right. So he may have known guys like this. You never know. He may have worked in as, as a plumber's assistant or uh, something like that. Sure. You never know. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned earlier, I, I kind of, you know, we don't really know a lot about his early years, but I like to imagine that he had all these odd jobs before he got out of Pekin and he just kind of tucked away all those experiences and, you know, decades later turned them into these crazy radio shows and yeah. uh, made yeah. the best of uh, a time That's in his life where he might not have been necessarily fulfilled. But I could be uh, assuming a lot about someone. Maybe he really liked his time in Pekin. Maybe he thought it was great. Maybe he did. Yeah, yeah. maybe got, they chased got, him got, out because he had a 10-pound fly at home. <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave home. It was – I don't like to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, one fly after another was bigger and bigger. And uh, my dad, he was kind of nutso in the head and uh, <laughs> had to get out of there. But um, I want to point out a couple of things here. Uh, I, f- I first heard Tanglefoot – just a couple of years ago, and my I've mentioned my older brother uh, a couple of times on this show, how he he and I share a great love of old-time radio, and he has introduced me to a number of series and a number of different episodes, and he pointed out to me that Tanglefoot was about two guys in Pekin, and um, I, sent, I sent David this, for the benefit of our listeners, I sent David and Paul this... Uh, map that I found of Pekin that was made in the 40s and um, it's a street map and it shows all of these streets that are mentioned in this episode and um, he mentions for example when Washington Street ends at Court Street that is real that's Washington Street is in Pekin and it ends at Court Street and Court Street Pekin doesn't have a main street. It's just got Court Street, which is the longest street in the city. And it is called Court Street because the county courthouse mm. is on Court Street. Simple, simple. Um, and it runs all the way down from the river to the the northernmost point of the city, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so... That's one of the reasons why I'm enamored of this particular episode because it mentions things. And he talks about going to Peoria. So-and-so went to Peoria because there was a sale at Carson Peary's (laughs) and now, which is now Carson Peary Scott, which I don't even know if it's still in business. Um, Nope. Nope. Okay. So, but, but for a long time, Carson Peary Scott was a very popular store Mm. in, in Peoria and Chicago. Um, And then he talks about PA Bergner's. And Bergner's is a store that was still in business. Was. In, still, it was still in business in Pekin up until the uh, early part of the uh, the late part of the 20th century. So it's got some cool stuff for me because I come from Pekin, and so did so did uh, uh, Willis Cooper. So there's that cool connection there. But aside from all that, it's a wonderful story about two guys who are just working stiffs. And one of the guys gets this idea about flies <laughs> and they have this conversation about fly paper. You guys noticed it. They have this conversation about fly paper who gets stuck on the fly on the fly paper, the stupid flies who doesn't get stuck on the fly paper, the smart flies. They, they land on you. They take a bite. They move on. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so great. It is so great to listen to this conversation because who hasn't thought about that? You know, these are a bunch of dumb flies on this <laughs> paper. <laughs> uh, so yeah. And, and who, who from uh, the months of um, June through August hasn't 
sat in his living room with a fly swatter. Mm. <laughs> trying to catch the dumb flies because the smart, the smart flies are too smart to get caught by the fly swatter. <laughs> so it's all, all along the same line. So just a wonderful story. And, and I will say that Cooper cheats because he doesn't give up any sort of information on how this guy made the giant fly. He says, it's a secret. <laughs> you know, he just says, it's a secret like that. And you're supposed to just accept that it's a secret. So, I, th- I think in Cooper's defense, I'll, I'll, I'll. That's do, how he uh, gets away with it. I'll do, I'll do point counterpoint here. Uh, okay. I think Change this is the kind ignorant of... slot. <laughs> there, there's oh, a for that, that one. Guys. There's, I think this is a concept that in lesser hands would have been very corny. Um, in Cooper's hands, it comes off as great. And I think that's because he doesn't explain it. I, I don't think this is a concept that holds up to scrutiny. And I think if he were to try to, um, you know, explain the science behind it, the whole thing would just fall apart because it really yeah, doesn't make any true. sense. That's but if you just, if you just suspend disbelief and accept it, it's, uh, it's an entertaining half hour. It's better not to know in the long run. It's yeah. better not to know how he made the giant fly. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. It's almost like, uh, it's not really a science fiction story that's happening in the real world as it is. It's a story about the real world that happens to have a giant fly. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there wasn't as much emphasis on it as there would have been if you would have made it more of a science fiction-y kind yeah. of show. You might have felt the need to delve into the size of the fly more and what he eats and how you got him that big, as opposed to the way he took it, which was kind of like, oh, we're talking about plumbing. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> I happen to have a 40-pound fly that just ate your schnauzer, you know? <laughs> you don't need gamma rays or radiation. You just need right. nope. You just need to formula. Just, just roll with it and it'll be it'll be okay. Unless you're the guy that gets stuck on the fly paper at the end. Yeah. The man paper. The, the man paper. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I stand corrected. <laughs> And I love that as well because the the way it ends, it's it's humorous, but sinister at the same time. Yes. Be careful not to step on the man paper. <laughs> you you got to laugh, but it's like, damn, because you're thinking there's a guy stuck on that and he's going to get eaten by a fly. While we're yes. laughing, he's going to get eaten by a fly. <laughs> well, and. I, I feel obligated to bring up the the episode of Quiet Please that everyone knows, which is the thing on the Forble board, only because in a lot of ways you, you could argue that Tanglefoot is is kind of a a reiteration of of the thing on the Forble board in terms of it's 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 kind of the same structure. It's a guy telling you about his blue collar job, and then suddenly there's a monster involved, and then you're being fed to the monster. And in, 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 in a way, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. He just kind of replaces a um, you know a subterranean monster for an enormous fly. But I still think it holds up. If, if you don't, if you don't make the comparisons with, uh, with the more famous episode, the thing on the formal board, I think this is still a great episode and maybe that's a good point too. Unless you guys have more. To... No, I, I agree uh, in that. Just let me say this one thing because sure. the jobs are different. You know, it's plumbers instead of uh, oil riggers. Uh, it's um, uh, one guy telling the story in the thing on the formal board when it's two guys involved in um, um, Tanglefoot. So, and, and of course the creatures are different. So it's, you know, it's just a different story. And sure. um, in this, in this one, somebody created that giant fly and in formal board, it was already, already living and just discovered. So um, some of the plot points are similar, but I think in the long run, there are enough differences that it it, it um, can't really be compared or or called the same story with different people. Yeah, I suppose that's fair. In my opinion. In my opinion. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Anything else to, to uh, add to this particular part of the discussion, Paul? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. Okay. So, Paul, you have the next line. Okay, let's vote. What are we voting on, dear listener? As a reminder, we are voting on, one, whether this particular episode is a true representative installment of the overall series, 
and B, whether or not it is a standalone show that belongs in every Radio Aficionado's collection. And again, David, this was your selection, so you go first. Well, I'm biased because I'm a complete fanboy for Willis Cooper and Quiet Please. I think every episode of Quiet Please is representative of Quiet Please. But I, I, I do think that this one is particularly representative insofar as it's a story that seems – if you were to describe this story to someone and just not mention The Fly, which is basically the first you know third of this episode, it would seem pretty banal and uh, uninteresting. But uh, the fact that Willis Cooper is such a good writer that he can give you that slow burn and not really reveal what's going on until – more or less the second half of this episode. I think that's uh, just amazing. So, yeah, I definitely think this is representative of Quiet, Please, and I think it belongs in any Radio Aficionados collection. Great, great. Excellent. Paul? Well, that's good. Well, um, I'm not the fanboy the other two guys are. Uh, this is actually the first time I've ever heard this particular series. Oh. Uh, but I really did like it. I mean, <coughs> like I said, the... Uh, um, the dialogue, the way it was written, was so natural. Don't feel like he was talking down to anybody. There was no, I am sticking the knife into your stomach and watching the blood come out of the hole. You know, there was none of that stuff going on. It was just very natural, and it was, well, uh, for want of a better term, joy to listen to. And so I'm giving it a thumbs up. Excellent. Pete. Well, I agree with both of you. It's uh, definitely uh, representative of Quiet, Please. It's uh, um, just a wonderful representative uh, uh, selection for uh, Willis Cooper's writing and Ernest Chappell's acting and the supporting character um, in there. I think it was just those two guys, wasn't it? Correct me if I'm wrong. There weren't any other speaking characters, am I right? Or was there a woman? I th- don't we hear the uh, the woman they're doing the job for at a couple parts, or do we yes, just hear their? You're right, you're right. Yes, okay, indeed. So those supporting characters were also very good, um, and I believe that anybody who loves this type of story should have it in their collection. So yes, thumbs up to both of those points. Very good. And so that's uh, all of us agree with each other, which happens more often than not. But it's more fun when we disagree on certain points, I guess. <laughs> Next time I'll bring a really rotten episode. I'll bring one Excellent. of the really bad episodes of Quiet, please. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> I love it. Bring us something okay. from Mystery Theater. <laughs> okay, great. Well, this brings us to the end of episode 12 of Old Time Radio Essentials with Paul Arbisi, Pete Lutz, and me, David Feldman. Next time the cycle comes around to Pete. And Pete, for your first selection of Season 2, what are you bringing us? Folks, with the episode you've just been listening to, we mark a full year of old-time radio essentials. I can't tell you how much we appreciate your sticking with us for all 12 months, honestly. Really? Really? How much you appreciate them? You know how easy this is for me to do month after month listening to you? Any, never mind. Go what ahead. are you trying to say, That's Paul? Right. <laughs> nothing. Nothing. This is wonderful. I stick the knife in my stomach and I see the blood coming out of the hole. Please don't stick the knife in yourself. (laughs) (sighs) Okay, well, I'm concerned more with the listeners than my co-host in this moment. (laughs) (laughs) Or if this is the first time you're joining us, thanks, and we hope you'll catch up on our previous 11 shows. So where was I? Oh, yes. For the next time, as David said, our first episode of Season 2... I'm starting a little tradition. As you may know, our very first episode featured the Mercury Theater on the air starring Orson Welles. So our tradition will be, at the top of every new season, we'll feature an episode of a radio series that had Orson Welles as the star or guest star. Pretty good, right? Huh? Huh? You like that? Yeah. Uh Okay. Okay. Thanks for your enthusiasm. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think so anyway. And my selection will be a kind of double whammy since it's not only got Wells as guest star, it's also a series we haven't featured yet, and it's a rare two-part episode of Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills, Suspense. But but you're going to tell us the name of this here episode, right, Pete? Sure, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, okay. My hair's not getting any less gray over here, so could we, you know... Hey, I know what he's referring to. That's a reference to the episode. It has to be. 
Donovan's brain. Am I right, Pete? Sure, sure. Uh, <coughs> I mean, <clears throat> yes, David, you're absolutely correct. So that's next month on Old Time Radio Essentials. Paul, David, tell the masses what they need to know. Old Time Radio Essentials is a production of 63 Audio, a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. Find us at www.mutualaudionetwork.com. was that? I lost track. I'm not even drinking alcohol right now. <laughs> That's find the us. problem. Find us at www.mutualaudionetwork.com or www.naradaradio.libsyn.com or, or on iTunes under Mutual Audio Network and or Narada Radio Company and on any podcatcher you may happen to use. Like us on Facebook at Mutual Audio Fans and at Narada Radio Company Fans and Friends. On Twitter at Essentials Old. If you want to suggest a future episode, write us at F6.3 at gmail.com. That's the letter F. The number six. The word point. And the number three at gmail.com. Put the words essentials in the subject line. By the way, guys, we did get an email last month from essential listener Zach. He listened to our X-1 episode and suggested that we run the BBC adaptations of Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. Unfortunately, I had to tell Zach that since that production was made in 1973, it didn't qualify as old-time radio. I mean, it was probably made before he was born, so it is kind of old, but we're keeping our focus on shows made between the 1930s and the 1950s for the most part. But thanks for writing, Zach, and please do send us more suggestions. As for the rest of you, if you didn't catch our email when Paul spelled it out, look for it in the show notes. And that's it for now, friends. Join us next time for another fun installment of Old Time Radio Essentials. Bye-bye for now. So long. Have a good night. I need more vodka. <laughs>